It's always more fun when I get to preach to my own bumpers. <laughs> and stick Matt with the nice little brother we're out there song. <clears throat> and then I finally get to use it. So, um, Glad you guys are here today. Uh, we had, as Matt said, um, a full week with the mission team. So I'm going to try to not be too scatterbrained as some things have finally come to a close. Um, it was a, a challenge a little bit this week to tackle Leviticus. Um, fortunately, I was able to prepare a lot of my study before the mission team came. And then this week, it was kind of finding time to piece stuff together and get my brain on one track. Um, but I'm excited about this text today. Uh, we're covering, for those of you that have not been here with us, um, half a book of the Torah each week. So the Torah is what the Jews would call the first five books or the law of the Old Testament. We would call it the Pentateuch. It's a Greek term for that. Uh, Penta being five uh, and Tuch being uh, books, so the first five books. Um, so each week we've done half of kind of roughly each one, trying to fly at a kind of a high level over the text instead of being in um, at a low level looking at verse by verse, which is typically our MO. Um, we spent 16 weeks in Ecclesiastes and 16 weeks or 18 weeks in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, that's typically what we like to do, but one of the dangers is that, uh, of that is that when you fly low all the time, you miss some of the big picture uh, on seeing how things tie together. So about a year ago or so, we did a series called Gospel and Kingdom. Uh, we traced over eight weeks uh, the entire story of the Bible, trying to get an idea of what kingdom, uh, or as we would define it, God's people in God's place under God's rule, tying that kind of theme all the way through Scripture to see uh, what God had for us in his revealed word. And so today we're kind of jumping um, back into our, our Pentateuch series. We're about halfway through uh, after today, beginning with about the first half of Leviticus. And so we've looked at, uh, at Genesis already, we've looked at Exodus already, and we're beginning into something new with Leviticus. And what I want to talk about today is really what defines you if you can answer the question, what defines you now, I'm wondering what it might look like, you know, in an hour or so when we're done. And by and so, uh, Mag finished 15 minutes early last week, so I get those this week, right? Um, <laughs> for those of you that are visitors, we, uh, we tend to go a little bit uh, longer in our sermons. But this is our only time that we get to meet as a body during a week, so we make use of it. So what defines you? Um, I was reading earlier, and I was interested by Paul's uh, declaration of who he is. If you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 1, it's not our text for today. Uh, but he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I think it's interesting that he has basically three descriptors that he launches into in Romans. And now, when you're writing a letter, you're going to identify who you are, right? And in a friendly letter, we're just going to say... Um, to whoever, and in an old style here, we would identify ourselves. This is who I am, this is what I do, greetings to you, and then you get into the body. Uh, we've kind of flipped that and put that at the end, uh, which doesn't make a lot of sense unless you know the handwriting, right? You have to look down to see who it is before you read. Back in the ancient times, their writing, they would identify who they are, and he identifies himself with three uh, very interesting words. He says, Paul, a servant. Well, in, in the Roman Empire, servant is not anybody with any kind of class. They don't have any kind of authority and power. A servant is someone who is subjugated under someone else. He says a servant, and he identifies to who? Christ Jesus. Called by him to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, when I look at me and what defines me, what is, who am I? I can say a couple different things. I can say I'm a husband first. I'm a son I'm a father now, I'm a pastor, and all these things are identifying markers of who I am. By saying that I'm a husband, I'm distinctly a husband. By saying that very same thing, though, I'm distinctly not other things, right? If I'm a husband, I'm not a wife. It kind of excludes that, right? If I'm a father, then I'm not, not a father, right? When we have identifying markers that brings us into line with some sort of description, some sort of whatever it may be. Your identity is that. And when you bring yourself into line with this, you are distinctly not these other things. And so what I want us to see is that obviously our identity defines us. 
I think we have a tendency, at least in our culture, that our identity doesn't define us. It simply describes us. And it seems very similar. But often when you hear someone's identity, they say, oh, they're towards that camp. But we leave our options open for other things, right? I think when we get into Scripture and we're looking at what identity is, it never leaves options. Scripture gives us an identity one way or another. And by definition, it keeps us from being anything else than whatever we are. And so the question that we need to find an answer to today is what defines you and what is going to be helpful for us, I think, in Leviticus is watching God define what the Israelites are. And so Paul, who is a Jew by descent, has identifying markers that he uses in Romans, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart. So these definitions, these describers, these identity things for him, put him in a specific camp. Let's look at what the Israelites are, because I think when we find them here at Mount Sinai, having come out of the Exodus, out of Egypt, camped now at the mountain, you see a people without an identity. So let's jump into this. I think some background that will help set us up today uh, in giving you an idea of what Leviticus is all about, uh, it would be, would be helpful. So before the year, let's understand this, before the year that Israel camped at Mount Sinai, we take ourselves way back in time, all right? You have to remove all the context you know about sacrificial systems, about David and Goliath, about Paul, Jesus, all that stuff. This is before all of that revelation. These are people that have just come out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and they're sitting at the base of this mountain. And before they camped there, understand this, that the presence of God's glory had never formally resided among the Israelites. They're called out of Egypt by God, who gives the plagues, and gives all of those identification markers of who he is, but he's never resided formally among his people. A central place of worship like the tabernacle had never before existed. And we think of, we're so obviously even trying to fight the notion that God resides in the church. That's what our culture would say. Yeah, church, that's where God is. When I need God, I go to church. And we obviously try to separate that marker that no, the church building is not it. It's God's people. But before uh, they camped at Mount Sinai, there was no central place of worship. Number three, a structured and regulated set of sacrifices and feasts had not been given. So if you go to an Israelite at the mountain and say, how do you worship God? How do you think that they would answer? Well, I guess we can sing them. I mean, you have Genesis, Exodus. That's your revelation so far. How do you worship God? And lastly, a high priest or a formal priesthood and a cadre of tabernacle workers had not yet been appointed. You had one leader, Moses. Moses was your leader. Before that, we had the, the fathers, right? But who represents us before God? How do I talk to God? How do I have relationship with him? I think Exodus provides for us in one and two, the presence of God being residing formally in a central place, the tabernacle. Those are given in Exodus. But those two things necessitate number three and four in Leviticus. You have to have a structured set of how to worship, feasts, sacrifices. And you have to have people who can lead in this capacity. And so that's where we find ourselves in, in Leviticus. Leviticus means simply this, matters pertaining to the Levites. The Levites were a, a tribe of Israel, uh, and they are identified as having been the priests. And so this book is completely, really, for them. Matters pertaining to the Levites. A couple themes that we're going to see is God's holiness, mankind's sinfulness. We're going to look at sacrifice, and we're going to see God's presence in the sanctuary. And if there's anything that, that we're going to be picking up, and I hope you have uh, done your reading for this, at least about half of Leviticus. Uh, next week you want to have the rest of it read. Is this. There's a great concern for corporate and personal purity and holiness. That's what Leviticus is all about. It's such a great concern for corporate and personal purity and holiness. So kind of to bring this all together and in, uh, trying to set the stage here. In Genesis, the key idea that we, I think we saw was beginnings, right? And then in Exodus, it was redemption. Right? We had the fall, and then we went into slavery. And then in Exodus, we have redemption. And then I think we'll find here in Leviticus, the key idea is worship. 
So we've already heard several prayers today about how we enter into God's presence as we worship, what our heart's attitude and stance is before God as we worship. I think that's the key idea when we're looking at Leviticus. When we look at the nation of Israel, we see in Genesis that they're chosen. They're God's people. They're his elect. But again, they go into slavery after Joseph dies. And in Exodus, we see that the nation is delivered. But not only are they delivered, when we get to Leviticus, they're set apart. So they've been chosen, but now they're being set apart. The people in Genesis are prepared, and in Exodus, they're redeemed. In Leviticus, they are taught. God's character in Genesis, he is powerful and sovereign. In Exodus, he's merciful. And in Leviticus, he is holy. Now, if we're tracking God's role through this entire thing as we look to him, we see in Genesis that he's the creator. And in Exodus, he's the deliverer. And then again, in Leviticus, he's the sanctifier. He's setting people apart. So to kind of give you an idea where we're going this week, we're going to be covering chapters 1 through 10. And the title, if you will, or direction, I guess we're going, is how to have personal access to God through appropriate worship. How to have personal access to God through appropriate worship. Next week we'll be covering chapters 11 through 27, finish the book, and kind of your direction for that is how to be spiritually acceptable to God through an obedient walk. Now next week is going to be a challenge in implications and understanding covenants. We're going to set some of that up today, Uh, but next week how to be spiritually acceptable through an obedient walk tends to reek of works-based righteousness. Um, obviously we want to avoid that idea uh, and I think that you're going to see a beautiful marriage and how these two things come together throughout the week I think appropriate worship is going to help set the stage for how to have an obedient walk and understand what that entails when it comes to a spiritual acceptance so with that let's, uh, let's jump in here <laughs> Leviticus chapters 1-7 through 7 are about sacrifices and 8-10 through 10 are about the priests and I think <laughs> I'm a little nervous in in some of the uh, background that I need to set up for some of our uh, visitors that are not used to kind of how we we roll. Um, Leviticus is intense. It it is. A lot of people avoid it. I did for a long time. Um, It's not an easy uh, easy book to consume. A lot of people start their uh, read through the Bible in one year programs, and they run smack into the wall that is Leviticus. that tends to be a common theme, at least from uh, my years of, of pastoring. Uh, people are like, man, I just can't get through that. It's just sacrifices and sacrifices. And if it's not that, then it's like in Genesis when you get into the uh, genealogies. I get it. People begat people. Uh, let's keep going. Um, Leviticus is tough. It's, it's tough because we've been through two books now of narrative. So it's like story stuff. It's the stuff that we do in, uh, in you know, children's worship. We're, we're teaching stories. We have all these examples but then we run into Leviticus, and narrative is over. There's only about a chapter or two of narrative, chapter 8 and some of 9. And so it gets a little more difficult to kind of parse what's going on and understand exactly what we're looking at, and not just in, in, in its style, but in its content. Well, last week we read through Exodus 29 uh, as part of our worship, um, and we're talking about you know blood on different parts of the body, cutting off the long lobe of the liver, and you look at this, and it's just it's graphic, it's repetitive, and it's intense. And so what do we do with that? Well, I think if you're not used to reading the Christian Bible, especially the Old Testament, uh, you may be surprised to learn about this elaborate system of priests and sacrifices set up by God. And when you are coming from outside of a Christian context and you look at the church, if that's you, then I would, I would assume, at least, that you're looking at the church as, as what you see in the news, what you hear from family, and to you, that's what Christianity is. And maybe you've heard that sacrifices have been offered, but you've never really seen what that looks like, and today we're going to. You see seven chapters at the beginning of Leviticus on simply sacrifices. And these are not even the first that we've seen in our journey in the Pentateuch. We saw those all over Exodus as well. But the Bible clearly teaches that God provides for his people in a way that we cannot provide for ourselves. If you happen to be wondering about becoming a Christian, one good place to begin is to realize that you do not have everything you need within yourself. Sacrifices are designed for us to see 
that we do not have everything we need within ourselves. Our goal as a church is not to tell you whatever will burnish your self-esteem so that you will have the confidence to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and deal with every problem life throws at you. In fact, I would like to save you a lot of time and tell you that you can't do that. You can't. Your self-esteem will fail you. Your confidence will fail you. You cannot deal with every problem life throws at you by yourself. I like what Mark Dever says in his commentary on Leviticus. He says, we are made in God's image, but we are fallen. All the answers you need are not lying inside of you, innate and untapped, just waiting to be elicited by Socratic questions or an epiphany or self-understanding. If you want to find God, you must first come to the end of yourself. You must first realize your own limitations, what you can do and what you cannot do. Only then can you find God. And so looking at these sacrifices, it's going to be a little tough to see through the veil of what it used to be in a different culture many, many, many years ago. And we don't have a ton of reference points. Now, Christians, as we're looking at sacrifices, as we're looking at the commandments of God, and as we look at the depth of what God talks about, we cannot, we have no business, understand first before we go through this, we have no business asking, complaining, wondering, whatever it may be, why God has said something. We have no business doing that until we first understand that he has spoken in the first place. The fact that God has spoken supersedes any, anything that we might have to understand, agree with, comprehend, until we have accepted that he has actually spoken. If God has said something, then that is first of all the way it is. We don't get to try to come to terms with it on our own. We say, that's what he said, this is how it is. I think the problem is we often bring our lives to the text. And when we're going to bring our lives to the text in a different culture thousands of years ago, we're going to be way off the mark if we don't understand, first of all, that God has spoken. And he said this for a reason. I think the fundamental difference between us and the rest of the world is that God has spoken. That's what it means to be in light and what it means to be in darkness. To have the word is to have the light, to have... To not have the word is to be in darkness. So let's jump into here. First of all, we are sinners, so we should offer sacrifices. If we're going to start with what God has said, then we're going to start here. We are sinners, and we should offer sacrifices. Not why should we offer sacrifices? Why should I offer this sacrifice? Why should I sacrifice to you? It is God of the universe saying we are sinners, we should offer sacrifices. I like the assuming nature of Leviticus and knowing that sin is going to happen. I like how he just assumes that this is going to be the regular norm for the people. So first of all, let's see the severity of sin. And if we're going to get anywhere, we have to understand the depravity of who we are, the depth of our sin, the severity of it. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Leviticus chapter 1. A little bit of reading to do today, um, but I hope it will establish some good uh, context for us. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. As the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons and priests shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring it off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side and the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by his wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire that is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Whew. How about that, huh? Um, these offerings are, are obviously graphic. Um, I don't think that we need to be surprised by that when we're dealing with death. Blood and death are absolutely important and critical to sacrifices. I think if you read through these burnt offerings, this is just for burnt offerings. If you've read the first seven chapters, you see other things like grain offerings, peace offerings, guilt offerings, all with similar instructions. I think that this order of sacrifices is quite reminiscent of what we heard last week in Exodus 29. Now, let's just think for a moment. Again, those things that are true before Leviticus of a people with an identity. Can you imagine trying to figure this process out by trial and error? When we get to the how to sanctify the priests in chapter 8, when we look back at Exodus 29 from last week, what happens if you put the blood on the right earlobe, the right index finger, and the second middle toe? You, they would die. They did it wrong. They would die. Can you imagine doing that by trial and error? Without God having spoken to us and instructed us in how to properly worship him, can you imagine trying to do all of this by trial and error? Thank God that he has spoken. We'd be through the entire, entire tribe of Levites before we got it right. How did you know how many horns of the altar to put the blood on? Which side to place the ashes? Whether or not it should be in the camp or out of the camp? Whether it needs to be male or female? if you're even allowed to do birds. God has spoken and he has given us a perfect account of what he requires. I think that the myriad of small details and the execution of the rituals was intended to teach exactness and precision that would extend to the way that people obeyed the moral and spiritual laws of God and the way that they revered every facet of his word. If your life is dependent on how you offer a sacrifice, you're going to hang on every word of how to do it. If my life was dependent on the sacrifice that I was making, I would hang on every word of how to do it. The sacrifices themselves were significant in being without defect. We see that mentioned almost every single time anything comes up. They were to be valuable in themselves, the, the without defect. That means the ones that were without blemish, the, the, the nicest ones that they have. So they were valuable in themselves and they were costly to the one that was giving them. The sacrifice was indeed a loss of goods, but also, understand, it was a destruction of life. And we see why if we skip ahead real quickly to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. But you might find yourself saying, well, why is all this important? Isn't the old covenant and its sacrifices done away with? What does Leviticus have to offer me? Well, you'd be right. The New Testament clearly abrogates or repeals uh, the Old Testament ceremonial laws. We see that in Acts chapter 10, 1 through 16. Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17. We 
We see that the, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament have been repealed. Not replaced, repealed. Important language. The, Levit the Levitical priesthood has been repealed as well. 1 Peter 2.9, Revelations 1.6, 5.10, 26. We see that the sanctuary has changed, right? Matthew 27, verse 51 indicates that. And it's not just that the, the New Testament it, and its group of books repeals the Old Covenant. The New Testament also offers and institutes a new covenant. Matthew 26, verse 28. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 18, and especially Hebrews 7 through 10. Jess read earlier from Hebrews. If you are interested in learning more about Leviticus, first of all, read Leviticus. Second of all, read Hebrews. Hebrews is like the commentary of commentaries for Leviticus. I mean, if you want to see exactly how all this plays out, and especially how it plays out under the New Covenant, Hebrews is the way to go. So understand that from Pentecost, or Acts chapter 2 forward, when the Holy Spirit descended as in Pentecost, the church is under the authority of the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. Again, Hebrews chapter 7 to 10. And so what does this mean for us? If the New Testament has repealed all that I'm talking about and preaching about, what do, what do we do? Our focus in studying Leviticus should not be specifically on what do I do with a burnt offering. Our focus in studying Leviticus should be the holy and divine character behind it. Now Matt has done an excellent job pointing to the character, the God of Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, right? He, he has pointed to the God behind all of this, not specifically what did Joseph do, not specifically what did Isaac do, not how did Esau get you know, his birthright and blessing taken away. That's, that's not necessarily the important part for us. It's who is the orchestrator behind us, especially when he has revealed himself as creator and sovereign God. And so if we're looking at the holy and divine character behind Leviticus, I think we'll, we'll understand a little bit more of the meat of what we are supposed to do with the Pentateuch in general, not just the laws and sacrifices that are instituted in Leviticus. So the sacrifices taught the Israelites that sin brings death. Paul quotes that. The wages of sin is death. And so for us, in, in identifying with the Israelites, as 2 Corinthians tells us that everything that was done in the fathers of old, in the entire Pentateuch, was for our example. So that we could see that and learn from that. So what do the sacrifices do for us now? It shows us that sin brings death. And that only shed blood can bring atonement for sin. Leviticus and every other book of the Bible clearly teach that we deserve death for our actions. If you want to talk about the severity of sin, sin brings death. Our righteousness has failed us, and we too need a sacrificial substitute. That's what Leviticus is all about. So we can focus on the holy and divine character behind it. We can understand that sin brings death. And finally, just in a more general sense, we can explore and study the truths of understanding sin, of understanding guilt, of what substitutionary death is, and by, by that, what atonement is. And so to get an idea of what that looks like, let's jump into the commentary of Leviticus and hop over to Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 11 through 28, Hebrews chapter 9, 11 through 28, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest... Of the good things that have come, and through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Listen to 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If goats and bulls can offer atonement, how much more will the blood of Christ? What kind of cleansing would that be? Verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's 
an understanding of sin, guilt, substitutionary death, and atonement. <coughs> and so what we see is people without an identity, struggling in sin, and needing to learn that their sin brings death. I think what's, what's wonderful for us as we look at the law, as we looked at Exodus, as we look again at Leviticus, and especially when we hop into Deuteronomy and we have really the second giving of the law. The law doesn't provide the way. It shows the way, but it doesn't provide for it. The law is deficient in such a way that it does not provide the necessary power to produce what it demands. But we find in Jesus, in the New Testament, and in the New Covenant, that God intervenes through his spirit in the new eschatological age. It means in the future end times age. That's, that's now. That's the church age. In order to create what he calls for in the new covenant. He intervenes with his spirit to create what he calls for. The Mosaic covenant lacked this power to produce what it demanded. Now, given that I'm Baptist, I'm supposed to have uh, three points in a poem, right? That, that's how I found a poem this week. This is the first one I think we've had at renovation. I like this. Listen to this and as it talks about the difference between the covenants. To run and work, the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. That's been attributed to eight different people, but it's such a good picture. To run and work, the law commands. It gives you all of the ideas, everything that you're supposed to do. And I think that's where we can find some of the danger, again, in our title for next week, that we might become spiritually acceptable through works. I think you'll see it already today that we need atonement outside of ourselves. But the, the way that the law looks, it seems as if we can make it on our own. If we do everything right, but it's possible, if we do everything right. And I think Leviticus shows us, even in the New Covenant, as we see that it's, it's not, it's not sufficient. It gives me neither feet nor hands. How am I supposed to run without feet? How am I supposed to work without hands? But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly. It tells me to fly. Something that humans can't even do, and it gives me wings. It provides the way. And so with the severity of sin, we have to understand that it's deep, and it demands death and blood. But God has provided a way. Let's look at the extent of sin. I think when I talk about the, the depth of sin, we're thinking about things that we choose to do. Someone who chooses to kill someone. Someone who chooses to steal. Someone who chooses to lie. And when we choose to sin, it's revelatory of our you know, depth of sin, right? Leviticus turns that on its head. Let's look at the extent of sin. Leviticus chapter 4. Just run your fingers through this real quick. Verse 2. If anyone sins unintentionally. Verse 13. The whole congregation sins unintentionally. Verse 22. When a leader sins doing unintentionally anything. Verse 27. If anyone of the common people, the whole of Israel, sins unintentionally. And so if any of these people sin unintentionally, what must they do in each case? He must bring an animal to the temple or to the tabernacle. He must place his hand on its head to identify with it. And then he must kill it. And so the question I have to ask what is our response when we're made aware of sin? Because in Leviticus 4, when he talks in verse 2, 13, 22, 27, if anyone sins unintentionally, and then it says, and is made aware of his sin, or is told about it. If a whole congregation sins unintentionally, and then later remembers, or is made aware of it. If a leader sins doing unintentionally anything that is against the commands of God, and then later remembers, or is made aware of it. Verse 27, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally, doing anything against the commands of God, and becomes aware of it or remembers, he must bring an animal to the temple 
place his hand on their head to identify with it and then kill it. When you remember your sin, or I think probably the more applicable question, when someone re informs you of your sin, how do you respond? It's the idea of the church, uh, particularly at Renovation, is we're very open in confessing sin to each other. And we're very clear, especially in our membership material, that we call out sin in other people's lives. Our DNA gatherings have been a fantastic uh, continuing exploration of that um, as we not only uh, do the, what I just mentioned, but like name it uh, and work on one sin for nine months. We seek to overcome these things in our lives. Um, but our membership covenant talks about calling out sin in other people's lives. In Luke, we saw that we should, uh, we should call people out over seven times a day. He says if you re rebuke someone on their sin seven times in a day, how they should respond. That's something that should be natural for us. The question is how do you respond when you're made aware of sin? Let me ask, how does it play out in your family? When a spouse, when a kid <laughs> informs you of your sin, I'm not looking at that. <laughs> when I sin against Adeline and she calls me out on it, in a respectful way, but nonetheless says, Daddy, you were, you were a little angry with me at that. What do I say? How do I respond? <laughs> when my wife calls me out on sin, how do I respond? When I remember, when God brings to my mind through reading his word or from singing a song or from whatever that I sinned, how do I respond? Do I understand that death is required for that sin? <laughs> I wanted to be a veterinarian before I was called to ministry. And uh, I was going to organize my practice in such a way that I would do, I could do everything. I could... I could do the surgeries, I could do even the shots and all that stuff. And when it came time to putting an animal to sleep, um, I would be out of the room. <laughs> I, I, I love animals. I don't like the tearing of flesh, as uh, Matt and Robbie can um, attest to from them skinning a deer in front of me. Uh, I can handle guts and all that stuff, but flesh I just can't do. So the thought of slitting the throat of an animal is absolutely repugnant to me. Not because I don't think it should be done, I just can't do it. Blood's fine. Tearing of flesh, not cool. That's required every time for unintentional sins. The extent of our sin is total and complete. It's not just that it's deep and that it's ugly and that it's offensive to God. It's that even when we don't want to, we sin. <laughs> How does this play out at work? And your church life, what does it look like when you're made aware of sin? What if you had to kill an animal each time? And this is just for unintentional sins. The depth of our depravity is full and complete in, a, in its extent. But, again, as I said earlier, there's hope. Thank God there's hope. God has spoken and he has not left us hanging with nothing to do. There is atonement for sin available. In chapter 5, look at atonement for sin. In chapter 5, verse 5 and 6 and 7 to 13, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, not the herd. Understand that, and I don't want to get into a ton of the specifics in this, but we're not able to bring someone from the herd, a bull or a calf. We have to bring a lamb or a goat, right? There's some Christological significance to Christ is the lamb, right? The Passover lamb. It had to be in a sin offering from the flock. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Sin deserves death. But God gave us an opportunity for atonement. Verses 17 through 19, still in chapter 5. If anyone sins doing any of these things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, Though he did not know it, but then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bear his iniquity for the things that he did not even do on purpose. 
And so for a guilt offering, the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally. And he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. We cannot leave today without understanding what sin is. We can, we can love creation. We can praise God for the fact that he made us. In his image, even. We can understand even just the fall in it and assume that we're bad people. But until we understand the extent of what it looks like to be a sinner, we're missing salvation. What are you saved from if you don't understand who you were? What is your identity? We can love the Exodus, that God remembers his people, and that he did not forget them, and that he made a way for them to leave slavery and certain death, and even call them to be his own. But if we don't understand what it means to sit and play at the foot of the mountain, to worship a golden calf while Moses is receiving the covenant of the Lord, the law of God, in his presence, and we're missing what salvation looks like because we don't understand our identity. And so then what is man's response? Man's response is this, repent and be assured. Repent and be assured. Just a moment ago in chapter 5, we saw that when he realizes guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, the priest will make atonement for him. Confession. Paul Tripp likes to line it up, like lines sent up like this. First of all, in order to be able to approach the subject of sin, you have to see it. It doesn't mean that we won't be held accountable for the things that we don't see. Because if that were true, then we would say, don't ever tell me about any sin that you see in my life, because then I'll be accountable for it. We're accountable for it in either way. The question that God wants us to, to, to ask ourselves is, what are we going to do about our sin when we realize that we are who we are? That's why when we realize it, what are we going to do? I think in a New Covenant understanding, part of bringing sins to other people is to obviously help with sanctification and being further set apart. But that's more of a New Covenant perseverance model than we see in the Old Covenant. Not that it's not there, it's just not as prominent. So Paul Tripp would say that you have to first see it. And you have to grieve it. You have to grieve your sin. That's where the sin equals death part comes in. Then you have to confess it. And only once you've seen it, grieved it, and confessed it, can you then repent of it. Hebrews chapter 10, again, jumping back into there, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is saying if the law of Moses shows you the way and you set that aside, then what in the world is going to happen to you if you set aside the Son of God? You cannot go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. But to slay any idea that you may have in thinking that that's something that you do and that you do by yourself. I don't typically like to take scripture out of order, but let's look at the context that comes right before that in verse 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the blood of Jesus, by the new and living, I'm sorry, I already read that, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet 
together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, now verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately. This is in the direct context of the church. This is in the direct context of the body working together to help combat sin. So, what do you do when you encounter sin in your life? When you remember it or when someone brings it up? Do you argue? Do you self-justify? Do you try to self-atone? Do you try to make up for it? See your sin. Grieve it. Confess it. And repent it. Repent of it. And when you repent of it, you can be assured that atonement is made. Why? Because we have a great high priest. We have someone who has died once and for all. So moving on then, that's how we should deal with sin, the severity of sin. If sin is dealt with, and part of our identity is wrapped up in the fact that we are sinners, but atonement's available, then, okay, now I know what to do when I sin, but what do I do with the rest of my life? What do I, how do I live my life in such a way that is pleasing and worshipful to God? Well, our second main point is God's people are distinct, so they should live holy lives. God's people are distinct, so they should live holy lives. Now, what's important for us to distinguish, first of all, we're going to spend some more time on this week, and then we'll spend more time on the other side next week, is that the priests must be especially distinct. So again, we're dealing with Leviticus, matters pertaining to the priests. What does the tribe of Levi and the Levites have to do? The priests must be especially distinct. Let's hop into the little bit of narrative that Leviticus supplies for us. Go to chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, go to chapter 10. Our context is seven chapters of sacrifices. In chapter 8, the priests are ordained. So if you read chapter 1 and then switch to chapter 8, it's really cool because he gives the outline of what should happen. And then in chapter 8, they do it. And praise God, at the end of chapter 8, their sacrifice is accepted. But first, what's interesting is before the Levites, before Aaron is ordained as a priest... Moses is the one who offers the initial sacrifice. Moses is our type of Christ, if you will. As you follow types of Christ throughout Scripture, you see that Moses is one, David is one. Uh, we see that throughout the story of God. He offers first atonement for himself and the nation and the priests. Then only are the priests able to do and fulfill what they're supposed to do. It's a, it's a delivering mechanism that allows them to fulfill their role. Then we get into chapter 9 and they continue, but we run into chapter 10 and the story turns on its head. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. So how do you make sense of this chapter? We see sacrifices, we see as the sacrifice accepted. We see the ordination of the priest. And then all of a sudden these two guys, these sons of Aaron, offer a fire 
for the Lord and they're consumed by it. I think in order to gain some understanding of why this happens to them, we need to look at what are the priests. What's their role? And so like Christian elders, the priests are called to be distinct. And so what led to this, this, this moment of their death? We need to understand, first of all, the special duties of the priesthood. The special duties is that they perform the sacrifices. They perform the sacrifices. Performing the sacrifices was a major part of what they do. So when you sin, intentionally or unintentionally, you bring an offering. If you're more wealthy, you bring a bull. You bring a, a cow. You bring that to the Lord, and you sacrifice it. If you're middle class, you bring something from the flock. If you're lower class, you bring birds. God provides a way for all of his people. Now, it still costs them something, and it provided a way for them to find atonement through whatever amount of money they may have. So you bring that, you put your hand on it, and you kill it. And from there, it's all up to the priest. The priests do the, the washing, they do the cutting, they do the sprinkling, they do the fire, they do all of that. That's their job. So performing sacrifices was obviously a major part of what the priests did. But think about this. Let's think about the 12 tribes of Israel. Great amount of people. One tabernacle. One altar. <laughs> There's, you don't need a whole lot of priests to do all that. Obviously, they'd be busy. But you don't need you know, 800 priests to work on one sacrifice. So what did the majority of, of the priests do? Well, they taught. The Levitical priesthood was also a teaching office. In chapter 10, verse 10 through 11, he says, You must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you must teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. How does Eleazar and the tribe of Benjamin know when and how he's supposed to offer sacrifices? In other words, how does Joe Schmo down the street um, know exactly how he's supposed to worship God? Somebody has to tell them. Somebody has to teach them. They have to bring the word of the Lord to those people. Both then and how to worship God correctly, and both now and how to worship God correctly. So teaching is a primary duty of the priesthood. They also have special provisions. The citizens of every other tribe labored for their food. Yet the Levites' labor consisted of teaching God's word and maintaining the sacrifices and the tabernacle. And so God supported them by these sacrifices. In chapter 7, verse 7, it says this, This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar, and all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priests shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Verse 6, Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priests who make atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven that is all prepared on a pan or griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among the sons of Aaron. And so this one tribe did not labor. They, did not, they were not herdsmen. They, were not, uh, they, they did not do any other type of work except what was in this office. And so this is where we would acquire um, some understanding of what it looks like for New Testament elders to be supported by the church. Paul uses these things um, that we see in Leviticus to help prepare a defense for why we take care of the elders. And every good thing should be shared with the one who teaches. We see that they are worthy of double honor. We see all these things, and most of these are based out of Leviticus. So we see that an entire tribe of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, were taken care of by the other 11 tribes. And so it's really cool that not only do they get to eat, but they get their skins from the sacrifice system in order to make clothes, in order to make dwellings. They get everything that they need through the sacrificial system. Really, really cool. So they're specially provided for, but what comes with both their special duties and their provisions is special judgment. They were held out publicly as models. They were to teach and exemplify what it means 
to obey the Lord. I have to live daily with a fear and understanding of what it means to be held to a higher standard. It's tough. It's not easy. It's even more difficult when you get to live with your family for an extended period of time. Um, <laughs> try to maintain that relationship and to um, still be a model is incredibly um, a fearful thing to understand. When we look at the New Testament, we see that teachers are held to a higher standard. We see that elders are specifically are called to a, a high standard in order to hold the office of elder and to be models and examples. But the problem is that when we look at the sons of Aaron, we see that Nadab and Abihu decided to approach the Lord on their own terms. We can never approach the Lord just how we please. And so my question then is, is how did you approach him today? The problem in looking at Leviticus is that when we look at Peter's words, he tells us that we are all the priesthood. Every redeemed believer is part of the priesthood now as we minister the word to the world. As we tell of the ultimate sacrifice that was made to the world, we are all part of the priesthood. And so we all share this special judgment. So now you guys are all in the camp of priests. And elders are still held higher than that when it comes to our conduct. And so if we are all priests and we can't just go into the Holy of Holies and do whatever we want, how did you approach worship today? Were you late? Was your attitude in a wrong way? Did you want to be here? Do you consider it a privilege? On your way here, as you get the kids into the car, did you have many unintentional sins? <laughs> how, does it, how does it work for you as you approach God? Because the, the difficulty here for us is understanding that we don't just go to the tabernacle to meet the presence of God. If you are a redeemed believer, you have the presence of God with you all the time. And so what does that look like for you? What is the stance of your heart now? As you approach a sermon on Leviticus, how excited are you to hear the law brought to your attention? You hear graphic accounts of what sacrifice should look like. The birds having their neck wrung, being split open by pulling from their wings. What does it do for you? So what is your identity? Well, I, I hope you found some answers to that. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're sinners. With a great extent of sin, great depth of depravity. But there's atonement available for us because we have been called by God, set apart for holy use, to be sanctified for God. So my question today is what is your identity? Are you set apart or are you not? As we're going to see next week, there's a difference between holy things, sanctified things, and common and profane things. We fall into those categories as well. Are you set apart? You see, supremely, the priests and their activities point us not uh, to us. It's not to just the priesthood now of the new covenant, but to Christ, who is our great high priest. The Bible clearly teaches, again, that God provides for his people in a way that we cannot provide for ourselves. At the center of God's people today is the one who makes us special. That's Christ. So who am I? Well, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a pastor. I'm a set-apart people. I'm part of the people of God in a new priesthood under a new covenant, one that is supreme and superior to the old covenant in every way, one that gives me the power to be able to complete what it requires. To be able to walk and work with hands and feet, to fly with wings. What is your identity? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing a song about blood. We're going to sing a song that, that describes what it means to have the blood of Jesus wash over us. I hope as you sing this next song, you pray that you'll be able to see your sin and that you'll grieve it so that you can confess and repent of it. Because there is assurance in his blood. 
Christ's blood that there's nothing else. We no longer have to have an altar up here where we sprinkle blood on each side and offer burnt offerings. We no longer have to kill an animal every time we sin or offer atonement for a nation. We're no longer bound to this, but we are free in Christ to live in such a way that we have the power of the Spirit in us to accomplish the covenant that is required because of his doing and not our own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for who you are. Father, I pray uh, that for us as a people, God, at Renovation Church, that we would understand what it means to approach you. Father, while we carry your presence with us at all times, Father, we would have fear and reverence in approaching you. And God, the idea of praying to you in a way that, that doesn't remember that sin equals death would be the farthest thing from our minds. Father, that singing words to you on Sunday has nothing to do with preference, musicianship, style, attitude, health, ability. But God, we are honored by the opportunity to stand in front of you and stand together and sing praises to you. And Father, as we are confronted with sin in our life, as we remember sin in our life, Father, as we read your word and it exposes us in such a way that nothing else can do, that we would cling to your blood. That we would grieve the offense that we have done before you. And Father, that we would remember your covenant. Father, we remember your blood. And your blood that can only wash away my sins. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.